When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Good morning. We are glad to have such a good number out with us this Lord's Day to be able to come worship God. I'm reminded of what the psalmist said. And said and I was glad when they said to me, let us enter into the house of the Lord. It's always a good time to be together, to be with our brothers and sisters in Christ who have fellowship with our God. And we have a time to worship our Lord and our Savior, and remember some things uh, that are important on a spiritual matter. And I hope that you will take out your Bibles and study along with us this morning. A couple of months ago, we looked at a few characteristics of the local church. I will remind us of some of those characteristics as we study this morning. But this morning's lesson is going to be sort of a companion sermon to that lesson in that it's not going to look at the local church, but it's going to look at another sense in which we can use the term church in talking about the universal church. And we'll talk about that and define some of those terms in a moment, but in the passage that we just heard in our reading in Matthew the 16th chapter, where Jesus our Lord was asking His disciples, who do people say that I am? And they said, well, some think you're some sort of prophet, like Elijah or Jeremiah, and then Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter made this good confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, God's anointed one that was going to be the king of the kingdom of God. And Jesus praises him for that. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Because this had come from Revelation and Peter believed it and so, Jesus then said that I will build my church. Based upon that confession, that acknowledgement of who Jesus is, Jesus promised that He would build His church. In the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 20, if you would turn there with me, in Acts the 20th chapter, in Acts chapter 20, and in verse 28, the Apostle Paul is... Here, speaking with the elders of the church at Ephesus, and he is having a very impassioned discussion with them, a very emotional discussion, because this is the last time that they will see each other face to face. And Paul tells them, and he's reminding them that I have preached the gospel to you. And he says in verse 28, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which He purchased with His own blood. 
that Jesus, God in the flesh, gave His life, gave His very blood as the redemption price to purchase the church of Christ. And so, that gives us some inclination here. As we read these passages, we are stepping away and we understand that Jesus is referring to the church in a singular sense, in a singular way. And I would suggest to you that whenever we read about the church in a singular way, we must understand that in a universal sense, with a universal application. But what do we mean by the universal church? That might be something that some of you are asking this morning. It's certainly something that I think many of us have some need to understand better. And that's something that we are going to try to explore this morning, is asking what is the the universal church? And that's something that we want to take a look at this morning from the Word of God. And so I invite you to be taking out your Bibles and studying along with us this morning. When we hear the term church, I think sometimes we automatically assume a sense in which it is talking about a religious group of people. And that's because church is very common in our uh, English language. It is something that we are very familiar with and that we use pretty commonly now. However, the term church, while it might, in our minds, we might think of it as just a religious group, in the original Greek language, the term comes from the word ekklesia, which simply means an assembly or a congregation. It's a group of people that have assembled together for a common purpose. In Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, that's the first usage of the term church ecclesia in the New Testament. But we also see it used in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen is speaking to the Sanhedrin council in Acts chapter 7. And in verse 38, when he is talking about and giving this history lesson of Israel, and some of the things that they have done, and some of the major events that have occurred in their history. In Acts chapter 7 and in verse 38, as he is talking about Moses and the people of Israel, he says, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together. That's our Greek word, ekklesia. It's just a group of people. And so whenever we talk about the term church, I think sometimes we have to understand that we are simply acknowledging that it is people that have come together and have assembled for a purpose. Many times, and I think we addressed this in the sermon a couple of months ago about the church, the local church, but sometimes we think about the church as a location or as a place or as a building. And that is never how the word is used in The New Testament, the term church is always, it always is referring to the people that are assembling together in which we might belong to that assembly or to that congregation. And so we understand that the church or assembly belongs to Christ. Christ is the one who gave his life as he promised that he would, as he told Peter, that I will build my church. That shows ownership and possession of it. And he gave his life for it. 
And so Jesus promised to build His church. Jesus died for His church. Therefore, Jesus is the head of the church. In the book of Colossians, in Colossians chapter 1, in the book of Colossians, in Colossians chapter 1, and in verse 18, the Apostle Paul says, He is also head of the body, the church. And He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. That He is the head of the church. He is the one who oversees and superintends the church. Because the church belongs to our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave His life for it. He purchased it with His own blood. Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. It is right that we identify the church, especially in the universal sense, as the church of Christ. Because it is the church that which belongs to our Lord and our Savior and for which He gave His very life and He shed His blood to purchase it. And so God and Christ, they only have one church. And yet we can refer to the church in a couple of different ways. We might refer to a plurality of churches because you read the New Testament. and In fact, in the example that we have here in Acts 20, he's talking, Paul is talking to the elders of the church in Ephesus. But then he wrote a letter to the church in Philippi. And then the church at Colossae, the book of Colossians, or Corinth. Or you go to Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3 and you read about seven different local churches. You have the church at Ephesus. You have the church at Smyrna and Pergamum, Thyatira. You have Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. You have seven, seven different local churches. And as we would want to understand better nature of the local church, it is a group of Christians in a specific geographical area and location that have agreed to work and worship together, that share a common oversight, that recognize that they are willing to submit to. And so whenever we talk about many local churches in a plural sense, what we are acknowledging, and this is what we looked at a couple of months ago, that the local church, it requires church membership. That whenever we want to identify ourselves with a local body of believers, that, that local group that we understand and we recognize that you belong to this group in a sense. And that when we do that, when we all agree to work and worship together and submit to common oversight, we recognize that there are leaders that we are submitting to. And then we agree to come to worship together. Not just one time a week, or not just once on Sunday, but as often as we can. Because we need to assemble as we have agreed. That the church assembles together at various times, and our meeting times are on our sign, on our website. We announce them at our services, and when we assemble, that's when the church is assembled. Those are the times that we have agreed to come together. And we need to be here to worship together. 
And then we need to work together and we need to work and share in the different things that we have, the edification of the saints. That is one reason why we have Bible classes, for instance. So we can learn and that we can grow and we can be stronger and more developed in our faith. We need to recognize the importance of that. We need to be involved in evangelism and sharing the gospel. We need to be involved in benevolence and caring for others. But when we talk about those things, we're talking about the local church. I want to make that very clear this morning, that we are speaking about the local church when we talk about that. That's what, not what we are going to be studying this morning. That was just a refresher. When we talk about the universal church, however, and I would submit to you that any passage of Scripture that references the one church, the church in a singular sense, must be understood in its universal application. And so we're going to be looking at some of the same kinds of things. We're going to be looking at and asking how is the local church organized or universal church organized? What is its membership like? What is the character of it? Is there work for it to do? But for this morning, at this point in our study, I want to try to define the universal church as any saint, as any Christian who is in a right relationship with God. That is the universal church. But we need to also recognize that there is a distinction between the universal church and the local church. Because if we do not recognize that distinction, then we are at risk of misunderstanding some essential qualities and characteristics of both the local church and the universal church. And we're going to kind of form a hybrid. And we'll have some more things to say about that as we continue our study this morning. But what I want you to notice this morning, and we could spend a lot of time looking at these various descriptions, and if you would like a copy of this chart or any of the charts, I am always willing to share those things for you. So I know this is a lot of information, so if you're a note taker, then you may not be able to get all this down. Uh, so I, I can make this available for you. But in the description of the church, in the various metaphors that we might see in Scripture. We might talk about the church as a kingdom or a vineyard or a temple or the body or a flock or a bride. There is always this connection with God the Father, Jesus Christ, and our role as Christians in that. And every time in every one of these passages when we're talking about the kingdom, there's one kingdom of God. There's not many kingdoms of God. Or there is one family of God, not many families of God. Or there is one bride, not many brides. And what I would just suggest to you is that with all these different metaphors, it has to be understood in the vein of the universal church. It has to be understood in a universal sense. And the universal church it is a unified body a numerically single body, and an indivisible body in nature. And that we are emphasizing that we have a unique relationship with God and with Christ. For instance, in the kingdom, as we might refer to the church as the kingdom of God, 
God is the Father. Jesus Christ is the King. And we are the citizens of the kingdom. Or the, the example and the metaphor of the flock. The church is referred to as the flock. There's one flock though. That's the universal church. And there, Jesus, God is the Father. Jesus Christ is the Good Shepherd. And we are the sheep of the flock. We are the members of the flock. And all of these metaphors and pictures of the church are pictures of the church in a universal sense because they are pictured and it only makes sense when understood as a singular entity. For example, take for example the bride-husband relationship where the church is described as the bride. That Jesus gave His life for it in a sacrificial way. And Jesus is the husband. And we as individuals are members of the the body, the church, the bride. Jesus didn't give His life for many brides. He didn't give His life for all the different local churches. He gave His life for the single universal church. And so when we understand the universal church, we need to recognize it in its Singular sense. That's something that is incredibly important as we study. And so this morning I want us to think about the universal church and its headship, its organization. That when we talk about the local church, the local church is organized in a way with elders and deacons in the book of Philippians, in Philippians chapter 1. In the book of Philippians, in Philippians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul begins that letter to that local church there at Philippi, where he says, Paul and Timothy and bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. And you remember that when Paul went about on his first missionary journey, he went about establishing elders in every church. That's in a local congregation. But what about the leadership and the organization of the universal church? Are there different roles? Are there different people who have a sense in which they are leaders in the universal church? And I would submit to you that there is no such organization. That the only kind of organization that the universal church has is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. In the book of Colossians, in Colossians chapter 1, in Colossians chapter 1 and in verse 13, notice the Apostle Paul begins, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He goes on to describe how Jesus Christ has all this authority, how He is over rulers and authorities and all other kings and kingdoms that you could ever imagine. And He has His own kingdom. In verse 18, He is also head of the body, the church. That Jesus is the head of the church. And so, after you see what Jesus is in His role, in John chapter 10 and verse 11, he describes himself as the good shepherd of the flock in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, if you would turn there with me, 
In Acts the second chapter and in verse 36, when Peter is preaching on that first Pentecost after the resurrection of Jesus. In Acts chapter 2 and in verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That Jesus is our Lord. He is the Lord of lords and King of kings. He is the King of the kingdom and He sits on the throne of David and He is ruling over His kingdom. And what we see is reflecting back on that chart that we had of all those descriptions. There is God, there is Christ, and there are citizens, or there are, are Christians in our role in, in relationship to the church. But there is no one else that has an, a part of the organization of the church. And so we have a universal head. When we are talking about the universal church, we are recognizing the universal headship and rule of Jesus our Lord. There is no one else that we submit to. There is no one else in the universal church that we recognize. That's a fundamental point and a unique point about the universal church that sets it in stark contrast to a local church. And since Jesus is in heaven, since He rules and sits on the throne of God, in Ephesians chapter 6 and in verse 9, in Ephesians chapter 6 and in verse 9, as the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus and he is encouraging, as he's in this context, writing to uh, the church about the slave-master relationship. And he says in verse 9, "...and masters do the same things to them and give up threatening." knowing that both their Master and yours is in heaven. Talking about Jesus Christ. That Jesus is our Master, He is our King, and He is in heaven. Our head is in heaven. And that place is the headquarters of the universal church in heaven. And there is no earthly headquarters where you have other offices and other organization to the universal church. The universal church is very simple in its organization. It recognizes the headship of Jesus Christ, which is a universal headship that applies to every single child of God. The second thing that we need to recognize about the universal church is that in its membership, when we talk about a membership of a local church, we have oftentimes a set number of people that we recognize as having a common fellowship with us. We recognize that they are saved by God's grace through faith and that they have become a child of God. They are seeking to do what is right and pleasing to Him and that they are ready to work and participate in our work. We recognize them as members. But in the universal church, when we speak about the church in its universal application, I would submit to you that we are speaking about and referencing all believers. All believers. Everyone who has ever confessed and been obedient to the Gospel of Jesus Christ throughout all time, throughout all history. That anyone that is a child of God 
He's a member of the universal church. Notice in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews chapter 12, and in verse 22. In Hebrews chapter 12, and in verse 22, the Hebrew writer says this, But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. You begin to see that this is not just talking about a local congregation, but that this has universal widespread application that all saints, all believers, all the righteous, because God is the judge of all. He is the judge of the one who is able to judge the spirits of every single person that has ever lived. Believers who have died and are already enrolled in heaven, they are part of the universal church. And you have fellowship with those who have gone on before you because they had fellowship with God. But then we also talk about those who are believers here on the earth. Believers who have obeyed the Gospel. In the book of Acts, we can read of many different examples in which where people would hear the Gospel, they would hear that and they would respond appropriately in obedience. In the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, in Acts the second chapter, and in verse 41, when Peter had told the people to be saved from this wicked and perverse generation, he had told them to repent and to be baptized. It says in Acts 2 and verse 41, So then, those who had received His Word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. What were they added to in verse 47? We're told that they, the Lord is the one who added them to the church. And so for those who are obedient in the, to the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they enter into this fellowship with God, and they are in a right relationship with the Lord, and they are added to the one body that we don't determine who's a member of the universal church. That's above my pay grade is what I would tell somebody. <laughs> That's something that is not up to me. Because... It is God who is the judge of all. And He knows the hearts and the intentions of people. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, in the book of 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, as the Apostle Paul is describing the church as a body, and he is describing that in a very detailed metaphor there, he says in verse 13 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and the 13th verse, he says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. That when we are baptized, we are baptized into one body. The Lord is the one who adds us to the church, the universal church. But then we must continue to remain faithful to God. Believers on earth who continue to remain faithful to God, they are the ones who 
are part of the universal church. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, if you would turn there with me. In 2 Timothy, the second chapter. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, and in verse 14, notice what the Apostle Paul writes to young preacher Timothy. He says, Remind them of these things, and solemnly charge them in the presence of God, not to wrangle about words which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. Here so far what we are noticing, Paul is saying, you need to understand and be able to accurately handle and divide the word of truth. You need to be able to understand the Bible. Because there are some people, and he names them, Hymenaeus and Philetus, who are coming in and they are causing shipwreck of faith for people. They are intentionally trying to mislead you by what they are teaching. And then Paul says in verse 19, Nevertheless, The firm foundation of God stands. Having this seal, the Lord knows those who are His. And everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. The Lord knows our hearts. The Lord knows if we are seeking to be faithful to Him. He knows if we are wrong, if we are in error. He knows if we are a hypocrite. He knows our true standing with Him. You think about that in contrast to the local church and the membership of the local church. In the local church, none of us are God. That should go without saying, but sometimes we need to be reminded of that. And so we may not always know every detail in every choice, and every action that someone might make. We may not always know someone's intentions. But the Lord knows. And that's a big difference in the universal church and the local church. The Lord knows your intentions. He knows your heart. And so when it comes to membership in the universal church, it's not up to me, it's not up to anyone else in this room. Membership in the local church is only governed by the God of heaven, the judge of all. This leads us to a point that I think we need to recognize about the universal church. Since the universal church is comprised of all faithful saints from all eras of time. There is no work that we are capable of doing. Because there are people who are dead and gone who have already had their names enrolled in heaven. The universal church has no work to do. 
So when we talk about the work of the church, we're, we have to be talking about the local church. Because there is local work for us to do that we have been given. But when we talk about the universal church, we're not talking about any work for it to do. And another important observation. I know of no way for anyone to express their fellowship with God in the universal church without participating in a local church. And if we are going to claim that we have fellowship with God and that we are in a right relationship with Him and that we are a member of the universal church, then we also need to be seeking out a place to belong in the, the local church. In the book of Colossians, in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 9, I believe this is an excellent text that shows us that we need to be a member of a local body where Onesimus is named. Our faithful and beloved brother who is one of your number. There is a number that is determined that he belonged to. The church at Colossae. The New Testament teaches that we should become members of a faithful local group of Christians. I believe that's something that is very clear in the Word of God. And that is something that we need to recognize and submit to that principle. But what we need to recognize as well, we need to be concerned about this, then this should motivate us to work on a local level. Are there people in our local churches who are no longer part of the universal church? Are there people who are with us but not truly of us? Are there people here who are living a life of hypocrisy? Are there people here who are trying to undermine the good work that we are seeking to do? Is there someone who is like Diotrephes who seeks the preeminence? Or... In the book of Revelation, there is that woman that was called Jezebel who was a terribly wicked person. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 20, she is described as someone who was committing all forms of immorality and trying to lead people away and to commit sin with her. The wicked at Sardis, that church that was described as dead in the book of Revelation, that had soiled their garments, while others there had remained pure and had not soiled their garments. Or the Laodiceans, whom Jesus said, I spew you out because they had become so lukewarm. Are there people here among us, even this morning, that might be members here at Westside, but are not seeking to fully commit themselves to the Lord and being faithful. Remember what Paul said, the Lord knows those who are His. And everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. I'll tell you, this is the question that can keep me up at night sometimes. Are there people who are not living right and who might claim to have a right relationship with God 
and who would claim that they are part of the universal church, but they are not truly living the life that God expects them to live. That's a question that's worth our consideration. Which leads us to our last and final point this morning. When we think about the character of the church in its universal sense, the universal church, since we are talking about those who have already gone on ahead of us, whose names are enrolled in heaven, the universal church is absolutely pure and holy without sin. That's something that cannot be said about the local church. Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, whenever Paul was writing to the church at Corinth about this man in that church who had had sexual relations with his father's wife. The church had become impure. And there was sin that they had to deal with. The universal church, there is none of that. In the book of Ephesians in chapter 5 and verse 27, Paul said that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. you notice that? No spot or wrinkle. Total perfection. I think you would agree with me that that must be referring to the universal church. Now this holiness is not an intrinsic holiness. It is that we have been purified by God's grace. That we have been washed with the water of the Word that He would go on to describe there. Since we are referring to the universal church, all the saved who have ever lived and who are living now and who are seeking to be faithful to the Lord, the universal church is in a constant state of perfection. It's always in a sense of holiness. And while in the local church we have elders who are charged with overseeing us and teaching us and helping us to avoid sin and to encourage us and to admonish us and discipline us, instruct us. In the book of 1 Peter, what we also recognize is that in the universal church, while there are no elders and deacons in the universal church, Jesus Christ is that guardian and that shepherd. In the book of 1 Peter, a couple of verses I want you to notice this morning with me. In 1 Peter chapter 2, in 1 Peter chapter 2, and in verse 25, he says, For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Referring to Jesus Christ. A couple of pages over in chapter 5, as he's talking about the responsibility of elders in the local church, he then goes on to describe the example of Christ in verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Jesus Christ is that head, and He is the one 
who is charged with overseeing the membership of the church, and He is also the one who is the perfect judge, knowing our hearts and our thoughts, and He is the one who is able to perfectly guard us and protect us and keep us pure. As local churches can depart from the faith because Christians who are still alive can leave the faith. But God and Jesus Christ, they know who are living righteous, moral, holy lives without hypocrisy. The Lord knows who are His. It's a firm truth that we have that God knows who is part of the universal church. This morning as we conclude our study, I want you to think about this for just a brief moment. That we need to recognize the distinction between the universal church and local churches. That may not seem like a big, huge distinction. There's a lot of commonality and things like that. In one sense, that might be true. But when we do not make the proper distinctions between the local church and the universal church, then we are in danger of adopting a denominational framework and mindset. And what I mean by that is that we're going to form some sort of... We're going to kind of create something that is larger than a local church, but smaller than the universal church. And I would define a denomination in that, that way. And it's something larger than just a single local church, but something smaller than the universal church. But when we refer to the, Christ, to the church for which Christ died, we are referring to the universal church. The universal body of believers that you can become a part of today. In the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, when Peter was preaching that Jesus Christ is now the King, Lord, and Christ. And he told those people that you are the ones who have crucified Jesus. They were pricked in their heart. And they asked, what shall we do? And Jesus or Peter told them that you need to repent and be baptized. For the forgiveness of your sins. And many people that day received that message and that word. They were obedient to that. And the Lord added them to the church. We learn in verse 47. And while the universal church is nowhere found in a geographical location on a map, one day the universal church will become a local church because it will be located in heaven where all the saints who have gone on before us, who have ever lived, and who will ever come those who are faithfully serving the Lord who will get to hear the words enter in, good and faithful servant, 
where we will all be together. We will be able to worship our God when we are in heaven. If that's where you want to spend eternity, then will you not be obedient to the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning? Coming in faith and baptized to have your sins washed away, to be forgiven and to be added to the Lord's church. If you have made that decision, but you've not been living faithfully and you need to make some changes in your life, we're here to help you and pray for you. If we can help you in some way, would you come now as we stand and as we sing?